Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. Caroline, I've noticed in the past year or so that in so many entertainment industry publications, everyone is talking about the quote-unquote rise of transgender TV. Yeah, TV is playing a huge role in the representation of trans people. And it's it's kind of been incredible to watch because, you know, when you and I were growing up, Kristen, um, Ellen came out on television uh, as a lesbian in 1997. That was a huge deal pop culturally. But it seemed to really take a long time for similarly positive or just sort of socially acceptable representations of lesbians and uh, LGBT characters in general to sort of follow suit. But it seems different with trans characters. I mean, like you said, in the past year or two, trans representation and the discussion of that representation has really exploded. Yeah, for instance, Laverne Cox has been on the cover of Time magazine, more recently on the cover of Variety magazine. She's had photo spreads in publications like Allure. Um, Janet Mock has been in a number of places. She has her own show on MSNBC. Um, you have Jeffrey Tambor, who is not a transgender man, but portrays a cisgender man transitioning to a transgender woman on the Amazon show Transparent, and he won an Emmy for that. And it does seem like everywhere we turn, we're seeing coverage of some sort or new projects in the Hollywood pipeline focusing on these kinds of stories. And as we're going to talk about this week, even though we are, yes, seeing more and more transgender visibility, that doesn't mean that the fight is over. That doesn't mean that these stories are being told in a completely non-problematic way. Um, but it does signal that we have come far, especially when we look back at the pop cultural history of trans characters, which if we look at LGBTQ characters in pop culture history, period, you take it back a couple of decades or even, you know, a handful of years and it's not so kind or even humanizing. And this is something that Julia Serrano writes about in her 2007 book, Whipping Girl, when she notes how trans characters are often stereotyped in one of two primary ways as either being deceptive a la the crying game, or pitiful to the point of looking like hapless cross-dressers. That's where we get into the transgender as a punchline territory. Right. That reminds me, I mean, going way back, that reminds me of MASH and the character who cross-dresses on the show. And it's just like, uh, there's just this weird thing about this guy. We're not really sure what's up with him. But isn't it funny that a guy would want to wear a lady's dress? Right, exactly. And I mean, there are a couple of common tropes surrounding trans characters. Of course, you've got the villain or the murderer. We saw this on the show CSI, which featured a trans serial killer. We also saw Michael Caine's depiction in the movie Dress to Kill. There's also, of course, like we just mentioned, the playing a trans character just for the comedy aspect or a farce, usually with cross-dressing men like in the show Bosom Buddies. Which, to be clear, 
cross-dressing is not the same thing as transgender, but pop culture has certainly conflated the two. Um, and then you finally get to the tragic character, hence seeing so many transgender sex workers on shows like Law and Order and Sons of Anarchy. Uh, Laverne Cox played a number of sex workers before her big break. She also had a number of bit roles on Law and Order, as it seems like most A-list stars <laughs> at some point have a bit part on Law and Order. I know. I love going back and watching those old episodes and just parking in front of the TV all day, honestly. Uh, but yeah, you will see some incredible, some incredible star-studded episodes. But anyway, there were some early highlights regarding trans characters on TV. It's not all bad news, necessarily. If you look back to a 1977 episode of The Jeffersons, for instance, they featured a, an actually sympathetic trans woman character whom George Jefferson was in the Navy with. And, and it actually portrays this woman as, you know, like I said, a sympathetic character, someone who's not to be pitied or feared. Yeah, and, and certainly... This character of Edie, who comes on one show, is still used a little bit to get laughs. I mean, The Jeffersons is a comedy. It's used to propel uh, George Jefferson's plotline in the show. But all of the blog analyses that I read about this episode praise it overall, saying that, hey, in 1977... This was a pretty big deal. And then, not so surprisingly, if you've listened to our episode on the Golden Girls, in 1982, there was a Golden Girls episode featuring a trans male character, Gil Kessler. And again, this is on a sitcom. It's partially used for laughs. Dorothy, in particular, can't entirely wrap her head around Gil. But ultimately, Gil, again, is treated as a sympathetic person, more of a human than just a prop. Right. And honestly, I think more of that plot line revolves around Blanche's sexuality. (laughs) And if Blanche is sleeping around, then it does on Gil Kessler's sexual orientation, sexuality, any of that. And so then in 1993, we get Olympia Dukakis starring as Mrs. Madrigal in Tales of the City. And this show has a detailed narrative and backstory for this character that doesn't necessarily exclusively revolve around her gender identity. Yeah, and Caroline, this uh, took me back to my post-college days when I first moved to Atlanta, and I was living alone. I didn't really know anybody, and uh, there was a solid month when my nightly routine was to come home, watch Tales of the City, which I had checked out from the library, friends, (laughs) and eat Trader Joe's popsicles. At the time, it was a little depressing, but I look back on it now as, 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 with with fondness. I love imagining Kristen just sitting there eating popsicles in the dark, well, watching by the glow of the television screen. Well, to be fair, Caroline, there there was at least one light on. <laughs> The Light of Mrs. Madrigal. Yes, and uh, fun fact, I was also living with a cat at the time named Fancy Pants. So it wasn't just me in the apartment. Well, but it, it's not just TV where uh, it's it's really hard for me to move on from Kristen and Mrs. Madrigal. But it wasn't just television that were make that was making great strides in terms of trans representation. We start to see in the 80s and particularly in the 90s, 
more sympathetic trans characters appearing on film. And Glad points to 1982's uh, The World According to Garp, which features John Lithgow in the role of Roberta Muldoon. And John Lithgow's character, he had been a like big-time football player and transitions into a woman. Yeah, and that was in the movie The World According to Garp. And then in 1994... You have Terrence Stamp as Bernadette in the cult classic Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And later in the 90s, in 1999, Hilary Swank plays the real-life Brandon Tina in Boys Don't Cry. And then I remember, this is in 2005, Felicity Huffman stars as Brie in the movie Transamerica. And I remember that being a huge deal, pop culturally speaking. It got a lot of people talking about sort of trans issues and trans people in the media. Um, that was sort of the first time that I, as a nearly grown person, uh, remember this really being a thing in the media. Yeah, I mean, it really was a watershed moment because the way the film was even marketed and when Huffman was up for an Academy Award and I think the film itself was up for even more Academy Awards, there was it did spark a lot of conversation about transgender identity. But what's interesting to see is that post-trans America, it seems like much of the progress that we've seen in terms of pop cultural visibility, has been taking place on the small screen. So, for instance, in 2007, you have Candace Kane becoming the first transgender co-star of a primetime series on Dirty Sexy Money on ABC. She had previously played a role on Ugly Betty, if I remember correctly. And it's around then that more trans characters start appearing on other TV shows as well. Yeah, we get characters like Max on The L Word, although a lot of critics found this character to be problematic for a bunch of reasons, but it was still getting trans issues out there on screen uh, and and talking about it, for better or for worse. Um, And then you also have Adam Torres on the fan-favorite Degrassi Junior High. Or was it at this point Degrassi? Just Degrassi. I think it was on Degrassi, just Degrassi. Okay. Just like Cher. Yes, just Degrassi. Uh, and then, of course, the character of Unique on Glee. Yeah, and this week, as we mentioned, we're focusing on transgender representation, specifically on television. You might be wondering, who cares about TV? Why does TV matter? Well... As Janet Mock put it so well, she says, there's a higher stake because often the only time an ally or cisgender person will have interaction with a trans person in life will be through the television, will be through a magazine article, will be through an Internet clip that goes viral. I mean, this is the medium in pretty much every person's home. Yeah. Where, you know, they are introduced to people that they otherwise don't interact with on a daily basis, whether that is a trans person or someone with a different ethnicity or socioeconomic background. I mean, TV is a powerful medium to introduce diversity into our lives. Exactly. It's how we relate to different people. But it makes a huge difference how those diverse people through television shows and characterizations are introduced into our lives, because if they're just playing up stereotypes, then is that really going to be that progressive? 
Probably not. Yeah. And to help us get into this conversation more in depth and discuss that importance of representation and visibility, we've invited a special friend of ours on the show to help talk about it. We invited our friend Raquel, who is a trans activist, writer, and really all-around media maven, to talk about the issue of trans representation, particularly on TV, because it seems like we're sort of in the middle of a of a moment for trans characters, but also trans actors. We've seen uh, Laverne Cox on the cover of several magazines. She's super vocal. She's amazing on Orange is the New Black. Janet Mock has a show on MSNBC. Bruce Jenner's interview was a massive cultural moment with Diane Sawyer. And so, yeah, today we're, we're going to take a look at basically issues around trans representation. Yeah, and we're also going to talk about the evolution of transgender characters on television and how we're seeing them more and more portrayed not so much as stereotypes, but as actual people. And we wanted to talk to Raquel about why that's important and also progress that still needs to be made. And a lot of things in between. So, first of all, Raquel, welcome to the show. Thanks for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. Let's just kick off with the general question of why should we care about television? Why do trans representations on TV matter? Because we might think, well, it's just pop culture. It's just TV. It's just orange is the new black. What difference could that possibly make? Right. Well, I think diversity, period, matters on television and the media. Um, just as we know, the world doesn't all look one shade or one gender or one sexuality. It's important to have accurate and realistic portrayals. And a lot of times, trans people throughout history have been portrayed in the media, but they've been portrayed through a cisgender lens. Um, they've been portrayed through words and voices that don't actually reflect the reality of a lot of trans people's lives. And it seems like, too, if we look at sort of the history of trans portrayed characters on television, a lot of times it's just been used, particularly if you go back to like the 60s and the 70s, it's just used as a punchline. You have Flip Wilson, for instance, cross-dressing, and it's just this funny thing of, oh, well, well, that's, that's all that really is. It's just play acting in, in some kind of way. And then you also have the issue of them not really being people and characters in their own right so much as just ways to push other characters' storylines along. Right, right, definitely. And and that's the thing is that um, I think a lot of times people forget that trans people are human, you know? We have lives and we go to work and we have families and loved ones and all of that good stuff. And we've been missing the mark for a long time in the media portraying that. Um, and I also kind of liken it, you know, to characters who were racial minorities being portrayed in the early uh, 20th century and how for a long time, you know, black actors and actresses were nothing but butlers, right? They were nothing but maids, nothing but literal props to these main white 
characters. And so I liken it to that. And I'm glad that now we're seeing more trans people having main roles um, and at least having characters, even if they're portrayed by people who may not be trans as main characters, as full rounded human beings. Well, if we're talking about sort of the history and evolution of trans characters, I'm interested in what your perception of this whole issue was growing up. I mean, what kind of messages did you get and did you interpret about trans people from the TV that you watched growing up? Well, the interesting thing, and it's so funny to look back now, is that early on, the first gender non-conforming person, not even necessarily trans, was RuPaul, right? RuPaul was huge in the 90s when I was a kid, and RuPaul had a TV show, I think, on VH1, and was just doing all of these big things in the media, but it was a safe portrayal, right, mm-hmm. of any kind of gender non-conforming whatsoever. It was this portrayal, again, that could be used as a prop, used as a trope, used as a joke within the media. And so RuPaul was never necessarily a human being, but this character, Mm -hmm. right? And then, I guess as I got older, there, of course, were shows like Jerry Springer and all of those kind of reality-esque talk shows. Um, And they, a lot of times, used trans people as deceivers, Mm -hmm. as these kind of people who were out, particularly trans women who were out to deceive cisgender heterosexual men. And that that's a damaging portrayal, right? If you think about um, the trans teen who committed suicide at the beginning of the year, Leela Alcorn, one of the things she said in her suicide note she left on Tumblr was that she couldn't see what a future would look like. She couldn't see that being trans means you're still a person, right? You're still human. You're still allowed to have ambitions and goals and aspirations. Mm -hmm. And visibility is something that we have talked about so often on the podcast. I mean, in terms of just how big of a difference it does make, whether we're talking about the representations of women in STEM fields or showing like you were talking about racial minority characters as people or people with non-binary genders and sexual orientations, how when you are a child, The broader images that you see in the more, quote unquote, adult world and the pop culture around you absolutely helps shape where you think you fit and how you feel in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, Matt Kane, who is GLAD's associate director of entertainment media, has actually been interviewed and spoken out quite a bit about representation in the media, both of just sort of LGBT characters in general, but also trans representation in particular. And he told U.S. News and World Report that the reason it's so important is because looking at these characters, identifying with these characters on TV is, quote, the next best thing to fostering understanding and empathy for people. And I mean, I think we saw that um, in going back to the 90s with characters like Ellen. I mean, that was a lot of people's first sort of introduction to like, oh, my gosh, a lesbian, like getting comfortable with the idea and realizing, oh, okay, well, this sort of humanizes this character that has only ever been sort of distant and kind of far removed from me. Well, and with the example of Ellen, too, it's interesting how that happened where you have 
the audience come to like her as a presumably straight woman and she's very funny and charming and so it challenges them at that point when she comes out to be like wait wait but hold on i already like her <laughs> but when she she was a lesbian the whole time so that means which that means that i like and i'm like cool with her being a lesbian too okay so it's 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 kind of interesting to see that um so when it comes then to the these more sympathetic, realistic portrayals of trans characters on TV, one thing, too, speaking of Ellen, is that Matt Cain's talked about how that representation is like 20 years behind the representation of the LG characters, um, although you could also say the B, where is that? We're going to yeah. do a podcast on bisexual erasure coming up, so listen in on that too. Um, but do you think, though, that that gap is maybe narrowing at an accelerated rate, considering the success of shows like Transparent, Orange is the New Black, and Glee? I mean, are we are we picking up some steam? I definitely think so. I It's kind of crazy to see so many trans characters, so many trans narratives in the media now. Even three years ago, um, for me, when I was really just starting my transition as a trans woman, um, I didn't really have all these outlets in media, right? I was just as in the dark as... I guess, you know, gay and lesbian people were years and years ago. So it's interesting that it has kind of picked up really quickly. And I think it really also kind of mirrors how our society is moving, right? Because we are, to a lot of people, closing that gap with the same-sex marriage debate, right? And so it seems like, you know, what are what is going to be the next big thing on the LGBTQ front after that, right? And I think that these media portrayals and this exposure is really setting the tone for for us having deeper conversations on what it means to be any kind of queer after that debate wraps up. If it wraps up. I'm not saying it is, but... Yeah, I mean, one one question though that that comes to mind is so in your experience going back to what you're talking about like 3 years ago when there's very little representation of what you mentioned with uh Leela Alcorn talking about how there were no positive representations to make it feel as though like transgender people like her were people too. So in your experience at that time what was your model? Did you have role models? Where did you seek out kind of the to help you understand like what is going on? And oh, this is this is what happens with other people as well. It's not just me. Well, the interesting thing is, and I went to the University of Georgia, and there I actually found a huge trans community, but it was mostly trans masculine. I actually really had a lot of trans men in my life who were my friends and that was kind of who I bounced some of my gender issues off of gender identity um, I guess ruminations and the interesting thing is once I kind of left that space and, and came to Atlanta, I found that there actually tends to be more conversation on the trans woman experience which is really interesting so Again, I didn't really have any trans women in my life uh, starting out. And it's funny, the first 
person that I remember being like, oh, my God, this is a huge possibility model was Janet Mock when she came out in a Marie Claire article. It was just like, wow, bam, she's trans. She's a woman of color. She is a writer. It it just kind of all fell into place for me once she came out in the media. Well, and to see her, too, in such a mainstream publication, I'm sure, like Marie Claire, where it's like, oh, like, Okay, this is just like a magazine on the newsstand that so many people are reading it. All right. Right, right. And and it was also very interesting just to see her narrative embraced in that medium as well because again, it was really validating for this women's publication to be like we see you, we hear you and we support you. Well, Raquel, you know, you're super active on social media and you've been writing all over the Internet and not to get off on too far of a tangent away from television. But I am curious what you think the role of social media is in sort of familiarizing a larger audience with not only trans issues, but also what trans characters are out there. I would say the increase in visibility, particularly when it comes to TV and and media it has given a lot of people confidence to talk about these issues. So if you're trans, years ago, you could easily be a trans person and be friends with so many people who didn't necessarily know because you never posted anything about it and never talked about it. But now it's it's welcomed. It's encouraged. Oh, this is your life. We want to hear your perspective. Can you talk about this? I actually have friends now who will tag me and things and say, what are your thoughts on (laughs) this? You know, this seems a little off, but let me really probe you because you know more about this because this is your life. So I definitely think social media has helped. It's also given a lot of different marginalized groups the outlet to critique media, right? So... I remember the creator of Transparent, the Amazon TV uh, series, she posted something about the Bruce Jenner situation, and it it kind of blew up, and people from the trans community were like, really? You're, you're really going to make this joke after really creating this watershed TV moment for us. Yeah. We're questioning you right now, and we want to make sure that you're coming from the right place. Yeah. So I think it's definitely helped with raising visibility, confidence, and critiquing the media that we do consume. Yeah, yeah so not only along with the rise in visibility, it's given a voice mm-hmm. that wasn't there before. I mean, we've seen that too, like in so many patterns of the internet facilitating these communities, like giving a place to organize those communities and amplifying those voices that were previously drowned out by the mainstream. So speaking though of transgender media critique and it being given more of a voice and given more power too through, through social media, I want to talk about RuPaul for a minute and Drag Race. Um, we actually mentioned this in our podcast a little while back on Social Justice Warriors. Um, but for listeners who aren't aware of this and didn't listen to that episode, RuPaul in the show caught a ton of flack a while back now. I think it was like a couple years ago at this point for a segment called Female or She-Male and also his unapologetic use of the word tranny. So... 
What? I mean, and, and a lot of people said, no, this is like not okay. You need to check yourself, check your own privilege, RuPaul. Like you need to watch your language, especially being someone who is so visible. So what, what is your take on all of that? It's complex because RuPaul and I love RuPaul. I said that earlier, but. RuPaul has been a pillar within the LGBTQ community for so many years. And while I don't want to take away from that, we do have to acknowledge that RuPaul, at the end of the day, takes off all of his drag, goes home, is a cisgender man. And there is privilege there. And when you're not trans, it's easy to be like, this is not an issue. This is not a big thing. But... It's really offensive because these are slurs that are thrown at trans women when they are killed, right? These are slurs that are thrown at trans women when they are discriminated against, when they don't get jobs, when they can't move about freely within this world. And so for RuPaul to completely dismiss that as if it doesn't matter is hurtful. And it comes from a place of not seeking a deeper understanding, right? Because... He feels that he's he's done his due diligence with the community. He's done his service. And so he doesn't have to learn anymore. But the thing is, is to be an effective leader, to be an effective spokesperson, you have to understand that you will not get oppression in its totality. It's completely unfathomable to do that. You have to continue to seek out advice and understanding, especially when you're trying to represent so many groups at one time. Well, do you think there's an aspect, too, of RuPaul maybe throwing up his hands and saying, listen, I'm not I'm not an activist. I'm an entertainer. So let me do let me do my thing. I know I'm not being a RuPaul apologist. uh, You know what I mean? But I wonder if that's that's part of it, too, of like, well, I don't I don't want to carry this mantle. Right. And, And the thing that is so interesting is this is very much an element of the drag community, period, right? And I actually used to be a drag performer, so I'm coming from a place of understanding. And I get drag as a means to push buttons, as a means of social resistance. But at some point, you have to understand that there's a problem when white drag queens do blackface because there are queens out there who do that. There's a problem when drag queens are misogynistic outright and and totally, you know, using the B word and, and calling women all of these different things. There is a problem with picking apart other people's femininity. I mean, femphobia is real out here. So we have to understand that regardless of whether you want to be a spokesperson for the community, you are. And if you're offending people, I get as as a comedian in some ways, as a performer, you want to dodge responsibility for that. But we're not going to let you do that anymore. Trans people have been doing that for so long. We've been sitting down, laying low because we've been afraid, but we're not afraid anymore. So RuPaul, I love you, but stop using this term. I And I also want to make the point that there are plenty of trans people who have reclaimed the, the word tranny, right? It, and I liken it to the N-word. There are a lot of black people who have reclaimed the N-word. And that's fine. Let people self-define 
as they will. But when you aren't in that marginalized community, it's not your place to take that mantle on for yourself. Woo! I want to. Can we put all of that on a pillow? I want to stitch your entire answer on a pillow. I love it. We are not afraid. Of so we have a lot more to talk to Raquel about when we come back next time for part two of this look at transgender representation on TV. And in the meantime, we want to hear from you. What do you think about all of this? Are there particular characters that you love or loathe that we've talked about or maybe haven't talked about? Let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I've got a letter here from Crystal about our baby weight loss race podcast. She writes, thank you for bringing up the issue of breastfeeding as a weight loss tool. As a new mother who still has half her baby weight after a year of breastfeeding, it's frustrating to hear celebrities as well as friends talk about how they got down to their pre-pregnancy weight just through a few months of breastfeeding, making the rest of us extended breastfeeding folks look as if we're doing something wrong. I've actually heard comments that it's my fault that this miracle weight loss tool isn't working for me. My diet and or lack of exercise must be the issue rather than the possibility that my body just needs the extra fat. I've heard that a number of women hold on to that last 10 to 20 pounds until they quit breastfeeding. So here's to hoping. Another thought I wanted to share was related to gaining baby weight in general. I wanted to have a natural birth with a midwife, but the issue of weight gain was brought up as a potential reason that I may have to switch over to the OBGYN. As a petite female, any weight gain looked massive on me, and I quickly gained too much, prompting my midwife to take it easy. I ended up gaining about 40 pounds and was able to have a natural birth. Anyway, I mention this to say that anxiety over weight gain might be related to a whole host of issues rather than just, quote-unquote, getting fat. Thanks again for discussing this, and keep the info coming. Well, thanks, Crystal, for your insights. And I have a letter here from Erin. She says, I'm only in my seventh week of my first pregnancy, so everything's a little new to me. I gotta say, I'm definitely looking forward to the baby bump phase so that I can finally just relax and let my tummy out. From what I've read, in a first pregnancy, you typically don't start actually showing until you're about 12 weeks along, almost all the way through the first trimester. What I've experienced and what people don't tell you when they're relaying the wonderful pregnancy joy is that in the first trimester, your body goes through major changes. That's when you get all the nausea, fatigue, moodiness, and bloating. Your digestion slows down so the baby can suck every last nutrient out of what you've eaten, but you also have to eat practically every hour to keep the nausea away. You have to eat if you get up to pee in the middle of the night. When the alarm goes off in the morning, the first thing you do is stuff some food into your mouth before you even sit up in bed. So now you're constantly eating with the added fun of gas and constipation. All of this boils down to a bloated, uncomfortable tummy that everyone around you thinks should still be slim and trim because you're not far enough along for the real baby bump. It still is, in fact, a burrito. A week ago, my wonderful husband got excited and said, Oh, I think you have a bump already. I had to say, No, sweetie, it's just gas. 
I was nervous about telling people at work about my pregnancy. I'm a metallurgist in a steel foundry, which is one of those woman in a man's world kind of jobs, although I feel like that's beginning to change as the younger generation step into the workforce. I have the fortune of having a female boss and a female HR manager, but most of the people I interact with on a daily basis are men between the ages of 30 and 60. Before I shared my pregnancy news, I felt self-conscious about it, but I've discovered that I work with a great group of guys who all have their own children and grandchildren and understand the process. They've been wonderfully supportive. She goes on to say, I've never been much into the whole celebrity bump watch stuff because my thought is, oh, that's cool. She's pregnant. She probably wants some privacy. I sure would. And I move on with my life. But I have definitely noticed this trend in the super fun, creative ways to announce your pregnancy and all the maternity photos with bare tummies. It makes me feel like that's now what I'm expected to do. Except that my thought is, why would I want an expensive professional picture of me half naked with a huge tummy? Am I going to hang that on my wall for everyone to see? Because that would be awkward. So I am now learning to let go of what's trendy and just go with what feels good to me. I think the attitude of your podcast helps support that kind of healthy thinking. So thank you. And thank you, Aaron. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. More on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 